A reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, beginning with verse 5. The Gospel of the Lord. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Riley. Well, this summer we've been uh, looking at the New Testament letter of James. If you've been here the last few weeks, you've heard that uh, James has a lot to say about the tongue, about, about how we use our words. He's been talking about how we boast about ourselves, how we tend to uh, end up in slander against others. In the midst of that, uh, we've learned that James has a lot to say about what not to do with your words. And yet that still leaves the question of, well, what should we do with our words? Well, as we get closer to the end of the book, James starts to shift gears and gives us an answer. Here in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, if you've got a pew Bible in front of you, it starts on page 1,885. The Word of God. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes, and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church and to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. So what do we see in here? Well, we see, for one, what a praying life looks like. If you're doing the math, seven times in six verses, James uses some form of the word pray. And to help us know if prayer is the right response in a given situation, he starts to ask questions beginning in verse 13. Almost like you've called the IT department to troubleshoot your situation to find out, well, what should I do next? Uh, The subject, of course, is your computer. Uh, People working in things like an IT department would ask you questions and offer responses like, did you turn it off and turn it on again? And then they would tell you what you should do next. And the following, uh, actually, we've got a picture of that, of what they tend to follow. They tend to follow a flowchart. This is actually how you fix your, uh, your Android phone if an app makes it work wrong. But don't worry about that, just as a visual. James is also following a flowchart. It doesn't necessarily look like that, but he's trying to help by questions and, based on your answer, tell you what to do next. So James asks, 
because the subject isn't your computer, it's your life, he asks you, is any one of you in trouble? Thanks for that picture. Um, in the original language, trouble um, basically is just, uh, no, yeah, that comes later, sorry. <laughs> there we go. James asks in the, yeah, we can take that away for now. Um, James asks, is any one of you in trouble? In the original language, uh, trouble is just this very general term encompassing a multitude of things. And anyone means, well, anyone. Uh, in other words, is any of you suffering? Are you in trouble? Are you in distress? Are you in over your head? Are you dealing with hardship or misfortune? Is there something big? Is it, is it something small? Is it, is it on your mind? Is it related to your work? Is it related to your relationships? Related to your family? Maybe you're even your computer. If the answer is yes to any of these or more, James the troubleshooter says, you should pray. On the other end of the spectrum, James asks you, well, is, is anyone happy? Again, using very, very general terms. He asks, are you cheerful? Are you in good spirits? Are you encouraged? Are things going well? Do you have reason to, to smile or to cry tears of joy? If so, James says, sing songs of praise. In the original language, it's just one word, solo, as in uh, the book of Psalms, the one that's meant to teach us how to uh, pray uh, to God, the book that teaches us how to pray our emotions. You see, in other words, if you're happy and you know it, don't clap your hands. If you have a reason to pray, to be happy, pray. Praise God. Do it in song or just in your heart. Either way, he's saying pray. And yet the Psalms were not simply meant to help us deal with the, quote, happy, easy feelings in life but actually the whole spectrum of our emotions and our life experiences. The Psalms deal with everything from sorrows to joys and confessions and teach us how to come to God with those things. You see, rather than just using our words to boast about what we've done or what we're going to do, they teach us how to use them to boast about what God has done, to put our gratitude into words. One day I got probably the sweetest text message of my life from my mom the day that she had eye surgery. Just hours after her surgery, she noticed something shining in the corner of her eye and she turned to see what's that shining thing and it was, it was a plastic water bottle that had been there the whole time. But suddenly the blue label just stood out to her. She opened the fridge and she noticed that suddenly the, the milk carton didn't look the same as it did before. She went to her desk and there was a container with a purple lid, which was suddenly a brilliant shade of purple. So she goes walking down the hall. She sees a neighbor with a, a blues jersey that is somehow really blue. And as she's realizing that these were the things that she was missing the whole time and now could see tears started to form in her eyes, tears of joy. And so, so she had to figure out, well, what do I do with this joy? Well, she looked for a way to pray them. I got a text message and she said, could we talk sometime uh, to pray together? I want to have the opportunity to give praise and to give thanks to God for, for the doctors and of the others for the work that they've done that I can see like I do now. James asks, is any one of you happy? Sing. Praise God. Give voice to your happiness because God wants to hear from you. A praying life is one that looks to God in all circumstances, in all situations, the good times and the bad, the easy, the hard times, and turns our thoughts, our emotions, our anxieties, and our joys into prayer. Praying to the God who longs to hear from you in the midst of all of that, whether pleading for help, giving him thanks for help, or just praising God for who he is. 
whatever your circumstances, that flowchart always points to prayer. And yet the praying life is not a solo endeavor. In verse 14, James asks another question. The troubleshooter isn't done. He says, is any one of you sick? Being sick obviously fits under the umbrella of being in trouble. So the flowchart is already going to point to pray. But James tells us to take things a step further. He says, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. In other words, don't just call on God. Call on others to join you in doing the same. List others in the life of prayer. A praying life enlists others to join you. I know a number of you, even in this room, have done that exact same thing before. You've been dealing with either a long-term illness or maybe lingering pain, and so you've done the very thing that James talks about here, and the elders have done the very same thing that James talks about as well, and you've experienced healing. And that part about anointing with oil that he mentions, well, that's actually part of of the praying. Uh, The oil actually served a ceremonial purpose. It was uh, symbolic of the Holy Spirit's power uh, to heal And yet the oil was also considered a medicinal for them. James isn't just saying, well, just pray and forget the medicine. No, he's actually saying pursue both of those together. In fact, it's a reminder that God wants to hear from you in your need and tells you to reach out to others to do the same, especially to those called to lead the church in prayer and especially when your situation is dire. And yet a praying life doesn't just enlist the help of others when there's something wrong with our bodies, but also when we realize there's something wrong with our hearts, with our souls. Verse 16, James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So where does that come from, James? Well, it actually comes from the previous verse. In, in verse 15, right after James talks about the prayer making the sick person well, he says, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. And the key word in that statement is the word if, and here's why. Keep in mind, in in Jesus' day, uh, people were prone to uh, over-spiritualize things, including illness. You see, once when his disciples came across a guy that was born blind, they said, hey, Jesus, who sinned that caused this guy to be blind? They assumed that there was a spiritual cause behind every ailment. In our context, we tend to err on the opposite extreme. We assume that we de-spiritualize things. We assume that it's always some sort of natural cause. There's never a spiritual element, and yet the reality lies somewhere between the extremes, realizing that a spiritual element is possible, even if it's not always going to be the case. And honestly, it's not just the Bible that's saying in reality, in, in light of this, we should be confessing our sins. Modern science is starting to say the same thing. There was an interview, actually, on National Public Radio where a neuroscientist named Dr. David Engelman Uh, was interviewed, and he described the reality like this. You have competing populations in your brain. One part wants wants to tell something, and the other does not. And so there's a real physiological battle going on in the brain. Keeping certain behaviors secret, especially behaviors that are seen and understood to be wrong, read sin, uh, means continual struggle within yourself. The internal dissonance and lack of a sense of personal integrity is draining. The struggle involved in keeping the secret is stressful. This means that your brain will register the fact that you, that there are increased levels of stress hormones going through your bloodstream as a result of this struggle to keep your secret. Your brain does not enjoy this stress. 
Those living duplicitous lives live with the stress of keeping a whole section of their lives secret from the people that they see every day. The fact that their brains are marinated in stress hormones due to keeping the secret over and above the damaging effects of the wrongdoing themselves can cause an impairment in the person's ability to stay healthy and function well. In other words, unconfessed sin can literally make you sick. James knew that, but he didn't need Dr. Eagleman to tell him. You see, in Psalm 32, King David talks about the effects of his own unconfessed sins. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David was saying he was weak. He was tired. He couldn't sleep. He felt exhausted, and he knew why? You see, both guys named David, the author of the 3,000-year-old psalm and the modern-day scientist, both Davids agree, keeping your sin a secret is exhausting. So James tells us, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Don't assume that it's better dealing with all by yourself rather than using your words to confess other people's sins, which we really like to do. Use them to confess your own sins. Unconfessed sin could be the cause of what's ailing us. It could be what's making things worse, or it could just be what's slowing down the healing process. But even if none of those things are at play, our physical weakness can serve as a reminder that we're weak in other areas as well. Even if none of those things are at play, our physical weakness is always a reminder that it's always a good time to confess our sins, always a good time to ask others to pray for us. We put it all together. James paints a picture of a praying life that's one that finds reason to pray in all situations, on all occasions, for all matters, and in all moods, by yourself or with others, praying for yourself or for others while letting others do the same thing for you, seeking others out to be known by them so that they know how to pray for you and so that you know how to pray for them, praying for the little stuff, and even for the big, seemingly impossible stuff, that's what James is illustrating in, in 17 and 18, telling how the prophet Elijah prayed that the rains would stop, and they stopped. And then he prayed in the midst of a drought that the rains would come, and they did. James is trying to help us see that no prayer is too big to bring to God. And so if you really want to know what the flowchart is that James is working from here, well, now we've got that picture for you. The flowchart James is working for essentially says, if any one of you, well, anything, pray. Simple. I think that's about, I think that's pretty much the whole flowchart right there. Uh, thank you for that. That's a life of prayer in action, a praying life. And yet when a former pastor of mine was asked, well, what's the connection between prayer and spiritual revival, the thing that every pastor wants to see? He simply said, when Christians actually pray? Man, that is revival. Why is that? Why would he say that? What stands in the way of a praying life? Well, honestly, it's a question too big for any one sermon. We're not going to keep you here 12 hours. Um, but we do, uh, we already saw some of that answer in our sermon series this spring. And if you look at verse 12, we actually see another part of the answer. James says, above all my brothers, do not swear by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. And here's how this connects to prayer. 
You see, commentators agree that the purpose of this teaching, first spoken by Jesus himself, was to ensure the integrity of speech without having to rely on swearing an oath. You see, a swearing an oath by heaven or, or whatever people would swear by was supposed to lend credibility to your statement. It's the kind of thing that you would do when you believe that your word alone wasn't likely to be taken seriously by the one that you're speaking to. Swearing an oath would be what you would do to add leverage to your words so that others would respond favorably to your words. But what if the one that you're talking to is God? See, as one commentator pointed out, in the midst of the troubles that James talks about in verse 13 and the suffering that he's been talking about right beforehand, people would have been tempted to strike a bargain with God, swearing that they'll do this one thing or this other thing if only God would deliver them, offering something to God so that they could get from God what they want in return, striking a deal. Maybe the most famous example of this actually happened in the year 1505 when a not-yet-converted guy named uh, Martin Luther was walking home from school where he'd been studying law in Erfurt, Germany. On the way from there, some 50-some miles down the road to Mansfeld, Luther was caught in a violent thunderstorm that was so severe he thought God had simply unleashed the heavens to take his life right there. You could imagine the terror that he would have experienced when you're miles from civilization, walking in dim darkness only to be lit up suddenly by a lightning strike much closer to you than feels comfortable, immediately followed by roars of thunder, all the while realizing there were no cars that had yet been invented that you could jump into. There were no constructed highway underpasses that you could hide out under. There were no rest stops along the way to seek shelter. It was just you an open field, and the skies above. You can imagine the hairs on the back of his neck standing up while his heart started pounding so hard he thought it was about to leap right out of his cloak, seeking shelter. Eventually, Luther found just a big granite rock, and he grasped it, and he hugged it tight, and he cried out, Help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. A time when God was way too unapproachable in their eyes for a common man to pray to, Luther instead cried out to the patron saint of his father's mining profession, Saint Anne, as as like a go-between, somebody who could get God's ear for him, figuring he could never do the same himself. Luther had just promised that he would do his part if God would do God's part. Contrary to Luther's example, The warning of James chapter 5 is, above all, don't fall into swearing oaths as if you could manipulate God by your oaths. Rather than an act of faith, making an oath of this sort would be like trying to offer a sacrifice, hoping that it will be a worthy enough offering to sway the favor of the one you're offering it to. Not coming to God based on how good he is and what he can offer, but how good you are and what you can offer God. Not by faith, but by works. Something so contrary to faith that James actually uses the language of condemnation in verse 12. See, bargaining with God is relying on your works in your relationship. And reliance on your works will actually kill your prayer life. See, if you believe that God is somebody that you can bargain with, you'll never approach him for the things that you don't think you have a big enough bargaining chip to ask about. You won't even think of approaching him for the things that you don't think you could bargain for. 
and definitely not for the big things like Elijah had prayed for. Or if your behavior has been less than stellar, you might assume that God just doesn't even want to see your face, let alone hear your prayers. See, it's not just so much that uh, your prayers won't be effective the way that talks about in verse 16. It's that you just won't pray at all. Even though the verses that come right after verse 16 talk about how God makes it clear that he does respond to prayer. He does affect circumstances in our world. In fact, there are certain things that God will only act on or do in response to prayer. That's how he's declared that it would be. That's why James writes back in chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. It's one error. It's one extreme. It's one barrier to the praying life we experience, but we also can find ourselves tripped up by the opposite extreme, which James writes about in chapter 4, verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see, if we believe that God is somebody that we can bargain with to get the thing that we really want, the goal of coming to God will never be God himself. It won't be a personal relationship. It'll just be a business transaction. I had a boss, maybe some of you can relate to this, uh, years ago, who would always keep track of the things that he'd done for me so that someday he could remind me of that when he wanted to get more out of me as a worker. Every time he did that, I felt that I was like being used. Like everything that he was offering to me was just so that he could cash in on it later. And as wrong as that felt, how much more a God that we approach the same way, offering promises to only because we want something from him in return. Or if you will, imagine the adult child doesn't call home, doesn't write, doesn't email, doesn't send text, does not respond to your text messages, and doesn't visit until they need money or legal help or a place to stay. And they swear, they swear that it won't be like the last time they came to you, even though that was the last time that you ever heard from them. In contrast to that, imagine the people who ask you how your day is going, who ask you about the mundane things in your life, those who are so used to hearing from you that a text message is not assumed to be an emergency in their life. Those that you talk to without even having a reason. Think of those that you do that with because the reality is you have a relationship with them such that you actually want to hear from them. They want to hear from you. It's assumed that you're welcome even if all you have to offer each other is the relationship. You believe something about them that actually gives you a freedom and a joy to come to them about anything that's on your heart, the good and the bad, the successes and the failures, the big stuff and the little stuff, and you believe that you're actually better off coming to them because of that relationship. If that sounds like the opposite of your own relationship with God, you might need to ask yourself, do I really believe God wants to hear from me? Do I value God for who he is or just for what I might get from him in return? One way to tell us to consider, would you still love God if he chooses to not give you that thing that you ask for? Knowing that many people want to be rich and famous, the rich and famous actor Jim Carrey once famously said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of just so they can see that it's not the answer. And yet this side of that reality, it's hard to imagine that the thing that we think will solve all of our problems could actually leave us disillusioned or actually leave us worse off than before. Now, if we grant that God is at least as wise as Jim Carrey, at least, 
that maybe the things that we think that will satisfy us actually will not, then maybe God's apparent non-answers to your prayers could be because he knows that it won't do any good for you to get the thing that you're seeking at this time or in this way or maybe just in your present state, even if there's nothing inherently wrong with the thing that you're asking for. You see, if you're not careful, you could actually take a posture where you expect God to deliver on your demands even if what you're after could be harmful to you if you get it. Friends, if that's become your approach to God, you're no longer looking to God as your God, but as your dealer, whom you're seeking to get things from that really hold sway over your life. You see, if we have a God that we can bargain with, it's not the kind of God that we'd ever seek a relationship with, not the type of person that we'd bring the little stuff to that actually builds a relationship. A God that we have to bargain with isn't one that we want others praying to about our sins because that's just leverage to use against us. So why confess in the first place? You see, confession and prayer for each other assumes that there's already a trusted and vulnerable relationship. But a God that you have to bargain to, a God who will give you good if you promise to be good, but bad if you've been bad, doesn't teach us to let our guard down before others. It teaches us to perform for someone's approval. And at the root of that view of God is the assumption that God is not really your father. He's not really good. He doesn't really love you. He's not really able. He's not really wise. You see, at the root of this view of God is actually our own unbelief. Unbelief that then manifests itself in bargaining, manipulating, trying to impress. The reality is you can't manipulate God, and you may not even follow through on your end of the bargain as it is. And so James makes it crystal clear, if you want your words to matter, do not swear to God. Pray to God. And to help make our own life a praying life, James shows us one more thing. He shows us how it's possible. Verse 16, James writes, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Prayer matters. God hears it. And yet at first glance, you might read that righteous part and you're like, well, obviously that's why my prayers don't work because I am definitely not righteous. And maybe even assume that it's your own fault for your unrighteousness when you pray. And yet the rest of Scripture says, yeah, not so fast. In Romans 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, there is no one who is righteous. No, not even one. You see, if you think James is talking about being righteous in respect to your performance, Paul tells us that nobody actually passes that test. All have sinned. Nobody fully upholds God's holy law. So then what is James talking about? Well, he tells us in verse 17, Elijah was a man just like us. Literally, a man with the same nature as ours, a human being through and through, just like you and me. And here's the rest of Elijah's story. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we read about a showdown between Elijah and the prophets of a pagan god named uh, Baal up on Mount Carmel. Uh, Elijah's opponents, the, these other prophets, thought that they could earn their god's hearing by manipulating him into action through harming themselves, offering him a sacrifice of sorts so that he'll give them what they want in return. In this case, fire from heaven. In other words, they believed in a God that can be bargained with. But the other, the God of his opponents, doesn't show up because that type of a God doesn't actually exist. If so, we would be God, not him. So how does gentle, meek, 
humble Elijah respond to his opponent's struggle? He spares no expense rubbing it in, shoving it right up their nose, taunting them, mocking them in their futility in front of everybody. And even though that same day he would see God answer his prayer by fire, see God answer miraculously his prayers, it's not long after that you find him cowering in despair like God can't do anything, consumed in self-pity, actually wishing that he would die, like he'd forgotten everything God had just done. In other words, Elijah didn't have it together either, any more than we do. See, James doesn't refer to the story of Elijah because of how he's so much different than us, but because how he's really just like us. A big, shameful sinner in need of a bigger God to save him. And he believed that God would hear him. And so you might ask, okay, James, so tell me now, how did Elijah pray so that God would hear him? Well, in verse 17, James tells us that Elijah prayed prayer. That's it. We see it translated as he prayed earnestly, which he probably did, but the point was actually the simplicity, that he simply prayed prayer. He simply prayed. No oaths, no promises, no appeals to his good deeds, no reminders of that thing I once did for you, uh, no actions in attempt to manipulate God. Elijah simply prayed prayer. In the way that we too can pray with the confidence that God actually hears a simple prayer and actually wants to hear from us today is by remembering what actually makes somebody righteous. Speaking about Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not righteous by ourselves or because of our performance, but righteous in him, in Christ. But only, only, Because Jesus, who had no sin, was willing to be sin for us on the cross, for all of those who had put their faith in him, taking the punishment of our sins, being treated like our sins deserve so that we could approach God with the same status that Jesus deserves as approaching our heavenly Father. It's what Martin Luther referred to after his conversion as as the great exchange. Hear this, friends. God does not hear you because of your sacrifice. He hears you because of Jesus' sacrifice. That is what makes a person righteous before God. And that's what, thanks, that's what Jesus himself was actually praying about the night before that cross. You see, the night, that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed this famous prayer. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, the cup that Jesus was referring to was this Jewish symbol of the wrath of God offered for a person's sin, poured out in response. Jesus was asking, hey God, is there a plan B? Is there any way for people to be made right with you, to actually be made righteous apart from going to the cross, apart from Jesus' sacrifice for those who would trust in him? His prayer to be spared the cross was heard by God and yet not answered the way that Jesus had hoped. Because the reality is there was no other way. There is no bypassing the cross for Jesus or for us as we seek of what it means to relate to God rightly in Christ. You see, the other side of that cross, though, actually brought something greater than simply being spared the suffering. Not only the glory that came with Jesus' resurrection, but also the salvation that it purchased 
for many. In the same way, God will answer your prayers. Or he'll give you something better. And on the cross, we see that God gives us something far better than we ever imagined. He gives us himself to make abundantly clear his love for his children. See, when you know that your standing before God is secure, that of a beloved child, that he is your father, you'll have confidence to approach God about everything. And that when you see the cost that was paid so that you could have that confidence to approach him, you'll find that you actually want to approach him in prayer, in praise, in thanksgiving, even in confession of your sins. Maybe today you realize that that you just don't have that kind of confidence because you don't have that righteousness that comes by faith in Christ because your faith maybe isn't in him. Maybe you believe that there's something out there, but you're not quite sure what it does and if Jesus has anything to do with it. If so, just consider the words of somebody who came face to face with Jesus and seeing who Jesus was, seeing what he could see, and yet seeing his doubts, said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That's where you're at this morning. Then make that prayer your prayer as well. It's a prayer Jesus always hears. Yeah close with the story. Uh, actually, a story by Rankin Wilburn, who uh, tells the story of a guy named Bob Mitchell. Back in 1955, uh, Bob received a letter from a friend named Jim Elliott, who had just gone to serve as a missionary in the Amazon region of South America. He asked, could you pray especially for Ed, that the Lord would keep him alive and would make him effective declaring the truth about Christ? So Bob prayed for their protection, and he prayed for their work few months later, Bob received word that Ed and Jim and their three companions had been murdered by the very people that they came to serve. Fast forward 30-some years. Bob finds himself in an elevator in Europe in an international missions conference along with some guy he didn't know. So he introduces himself to this guy, and the guy identifies himself as an evangelist named Minkaye. The religion that Minkaye grew up with, he described, uh, worked on the basis of reciprocity. You scratch my back and, and I scratch yours. If someone was sick, a shaman in their culture would try to honor a spirit so that spirit in return would offer healing to the one who was sick. And it spilled over into the rest of their life. If somebody murdered a member of your tribe, well, then you had to murder somebody of the other tribe. Revenge killings were the standard and it was decimating the population of their tribe and their neighbors. That's the context that a group of missionaries once stepped into to share the message of Jesus to this previously isolated group. One day, in order for another member of that tribe to save face in the midst of one of his own shortcomings, he he shifted blame and and he accused the missionaries of doing something they didn't do, something so horrific that Minkaye and others went out and killed all of those men. Minkaye's people, who lived and died by reciprocity, whether in their approach to religion or their revenge killings, what shocked them was how the people responded, how the families, the widows, the survivors responded to them. Rather than seeking Minkaye's death or the death of others, they reached out to serve them, caring for their sick, seeing what needs they could meet, showing them grace the grace that helped them to see and later on to believe the grace that was being offered 
in Christ. Since then, Menkaye said that he has seen thousands of people come to know Christ, starting with his own people. And yet as Menkaye shared his story, Bob started to put the pieces together. He started to remember those letters from 30 years ago. He realized he'd been sharing an elevator in a conversation with one of the men who had killed Ed and Jim and the others. You could imagine his grief and his disillusionment 30-some years ago when he heard that his friends had died, and yet what had happened since then, which he witnessed right there in and through Minkaye's life, was the very reason that his friends wanted to go to that people in the first place. He realized that the answer to his prayer from 30 years ago was literally standing right in front of him. God had answered his prayer in ways he never even knew and beyond what he could have imagined. You see, those who had a concept of spirituality rooted in getting according to what you give had just encountered a God who gives something radically, radically different. A God who invites us to come to him not based on what we have done or what we have deserved, but based on who Jesus is and the standing before God that Jesus deserved. The standing of being able to come to God as your father see as one whose faith itself was the result of other people's prayers. Prayers like that of Bob. Minkaye had now entered into a reality that, to say the least, radically changed his concept of God. And with that, how to relate to him. Not through bargaining, but through the empty hands of prayer. As the old song goes, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. May the same be true of us in this place. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you do not come to us as a God to be bargained with, a God so small that you could be manipulated, but instead a God big enough uh, to love us in spite of our sin, a God big enough uh, to offer us something above and beyond what we could have ever dared hope, a God who is big enough not only to answer our prayers, but to answer the prayers that we would have prayed if we came to you with your wisdom, your insight, your view of the whole picture, and your holiness. Uh, Father, strengthen us in our confidence that you are there, that you hear, that you are good, that you are wise, and you always hear the prayers of your people offered in faith. We pray these things as we come to this table this morning. Amen.